Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Heart of Sports with Jason Springer and Jeff Cohen, powered by ELEC 825. We are thrilled to join you on WWDB 860 AM 97.5 HD2, a part of the Beasley Media Group, ready to help you move into the weekend, talking about all the news in the world of sports. There's no chance I'm going to even ask you if you watched Thursday Night Football last night, Jeff. So you just not, did. No, I'm, just not, so we're clear. I'm not going you there. Think, saying I'm not going to ask you and then saying the subject is the equivalent of asking the question. No, I'm not. I, I made clear I wasn't going to ask you. Just So, you so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to say I'm not going to give you the answer. But the answer is that, no, I didn't watch the 30th night football. I wasn't ever going to watch it during the season. So why would I watch it during the preseason? And by the way, is this the week that they actually play or is this, the, is this another one of the weeks when they don't they don't play anybody of relevance? Well, there were only three weeks of games. So no, that nobody plays. Uh, it's totally different now. Um, look, I, I had fun though. I took my kid down to the game. That like it was fun for those purposes. Uh, that was season, last week. The Eagle season kicks off September 10th. Uh, so we got a little kind of dead period between this where they'll they'll get teams ready. Roster cut down will be the 29th. So like, I, I'm not. I know you're not the guy to break down the schedule before everything's final. So I'm not gonna. Do that. I'm. I'm. I'm just gonna say I. I am excited for football. We'll get more to college football in a little bit, but I, look, I was away for a couple of days with the kids, and Brandon, my six year old, is very excited about the Phillies now. So he wanted like updates on what was going on all the time. Right. When Bryce Harper hit that home run the other day. Wait, I, wait. Are we off football now? Oh, did you want to go back to football? Or I don't. You... I don't understand what happened here. I thought we were we were talking about. Football. I thought we were talking about Thursday Night Football. We were talking about roster cuts. Apparently, you didn't need me for this episode of the show because all of a sudden you just randomly went on to baseball. Isn't that how it always is? I just kind of changed the subject in the middle of everything. Is that how it goes? Would you like to talk football? I didn't. I I did not get the. I did not get the. Jeff doesn't get the comment on useless Thursday Night Football. But there actually is one thing as far as i know that is happening in and the nfl that actually might be of interest okay is now it doesn't play into the eagles necessarily yet but considering it's another contender what just happened with trey lance san francisco spent a a lot of trey lance goes from the guy that they move up in the draft to get to the number three slot in the first round to a guy who got hurt lost his job to Brock Purdy last year and now who is the last guy drafted in that year and then loses apparently the second string job to Sam Darnold who kept getting traded around because he was a disaster so what do the 49ers do at this point they don't have any leverage to make a big trade what did they, give they just up? voted him. What did they give up? Three number ones to trade up and get him? Is that is that yeah. what they did at the time? Like that's a that's a big hole to dig yourself out of. And I mean, I the last I saw was they said they were going to keep him. I don't see how you keep the guy if you've shown such little confidence in him. I think they're probably just saying that just so they seem like and they're the creating it's leverage. In, look, it's yeah. It's a negotiating tactic. They don't want to look like they're going to give them away for pennies on the dollar. But the fact is, they can say all they want. They're going to keep them, and they can. They can they can make them a third-string quarterback on the practice squad if that's what they want to do, or they can keep them on the roster and, and have a third-string quarterback standing on the sideline if that's what they want to do. 
The question is, do you do that? I don't know how much salary cap space he's going to be taking up for them, but it it is kind of impressive. You know, when you make a mistake that high in the draft, normally you sit there and say the front office is a problem. But in this particular case, just like what the Eagles have done, is they're able to acknowledge their mistakes, move on, and be successful. You got to give them credit for that. Look, they're seeing it's not working. The question is, does he move on? And does he become the player people thought he would someplace else? Is it a problem of the fit in San Francisco? Or is it a problem with the player not being able to live up to the expectations that were put on him? I don't know that. No, but th- this this is this is the warning that the Colts need to take, in, take into consideration. When you dr- It's not just drafting a guy who's raw. It's drafting a guy who's raw, who hasn't had reps. Trey Lance did not have many reps, even in college, and then got to the NFL. Nobody knows whether he can. The quarterback position, you have to think so fast. You have to be able to look around so fast. You have to process information so fast. And if you don't have the reps to do it, it becomes all instinct for a quarterback. It isn't just whether or not you're intelligent. It doesn't mean that you you knowing the playbook is enough or having the skills enough. It's having the reaction time, which only can come from thousands and thousands of reps. Well, the Colts are apparently going to throw them right into the fire because they've named Anthony Richardson their starter over Gardner Minshew. So, yeah. you know, well, do you trust anything the Colts are doing? I mean, l- listen to Earsay sitting there. There's another guy who doesn't know how to negotiate. He's sitting there saying that his star running back, he just says bad things about him all the time. And now he's saying, okay, you have a certain amount of time to go out and negotiate another deal. Yeah, I'm not, well, I'm not sure how that's going to work. We, you know, it, you would think that they would move him though. I mean, he's clearly disgruntled. They'll take pennies on the dollar. You know, do you think that, I mean, I saw Mickey Loomis of the saints talking about how he always makes sure that he has both hands in his pockets to, when he talks to Howie Roseman so that he doesn't get kind of implying he didn't want to get fleeced on a trade. The Eagles have a bunch of running backs. Do you think they try and take a flyer on something like that of a Jonathan Taylor? No, on Taylor, on Taylor. I have no idea. How are they going to fit him in? I don't know. I honestly have no idea what the numbers are. I, then I, where are you getting that information? Like, what you're you're just throwing stuff out. Do they have room for him? Can you bring him in at this point? Do you want to bring him in at this point? Jonathan Taylor is a high rep guy. You think he's going to come in here and be thrilled with this kind of offense, especially when you just spent draft capital or trade capital in getting DeAndre Swift? No, I mean, look, I think any team always tries to acquire talent, but I don't think that they that Jonathan Taylor fits with what they have with their other backs right now. Right. He's just not going to get enough productivity in this backfield to be happy or probably make it worth it. So, I mean, we'll see who ends up on the final roster when it's done. It'll be done by next week's show for us so we can, you know, look at who's actually on the team, what depth they ended up and, and whether how he ends up making any more moves before, you know, roster cutdowns. All right. Well, uh, uh, now I'm going to transition without you realizing that I'm going to do it. Oh, for you just announced up, it. Well, that's sort of yes. like my. Did you watch Thursday Night Football? But I won't talk about Thursday Night Football. Type exactly. Transition. Okay. I don't want you to get lost here. All so right. basically, <laughs> you, you mentioned that they're going to trade him because he's disgruntled. That's not how this works. You don't just trade somebody because they're disgruntled. Ask Daryl Morey. So why don't we talk about something more local for us, which is we have, again, a disgruntled, disgruntled point guard who, who, who thinks he's just going to get traded 
because he pouts and he stomps up and down and he'll probably go out and partying and he'll come in out of shape. Well, his liar rant cost him a hundred grand. Uh, the NBA fined him this week. The NBA Players Association, of course, is there to say that they will file a grievance and appeal that uh, fining. Okay, so so can can we 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 often talk about James Harden thinks he's the smartest person in the room, but he doesn't realize he must be in a room by himself. <laughs> we now have a situation where he stomped up and down. Everybody thought that what he was trying to do was get Daryl Morey in trouble. What just happened? Instead of Daryl Morey getting in trouble. Harden got fined the maximum amount you could be fined, which is $100,000. Look, if you believe... Again, report, not the smartest guy in the room. If you believe the reports, the people around him didn't want him to do it. He just kind of went off on his own there and then decided to do it because he was unhappy. I find it more interesting how the players are reacting to it. Uh, Tyrese Maxey was asked this week, and he kind of alluded to they've they've been here before with Ben Simmons. He said it's crazy to see that to say this, but it's not our first rodeo. Honestly, it's funny to say, but that's life. And and he, he says if he's going to come back, great. Uh, you know, but you know he may move on. I, I I didn't really think about that. I mean, these guys are kind of used to a circus. All the people in the organization are used to a circus. Are they used well, to a circus yeah, like but, this? But the question is. When Maxie said that, who was he taking the shot at? Was he taking the shot at Harden, because this is the second crybaby that we've had in recent years, or is he taking a shot at the organization because of the circus atmosphere that they've allowed to go on? So I, I don't read it as a shot, actually. I read it as, like, we're kind of used to this craziness. I didn't view it as... That a, is a shot. As a shot, as, like, a slight at somebody. Just, like, we're kind of used is. to this. But I guess you're you, right. How could you say it's not? Well, no. Having, it, having, having, a, having a kangaroo court organization, having a bunch of people that can't get things right so that everybody can operate in harmony as a team is a shot. Don't worry. The owner is getting the game ball for the commander's preseason games. He's totally on top of what's going on right now. Oh, and working on the stadium, too. Like, it seems like priority three right now is the players and what's going on and i mean you got a fight between your general manager and one of your stars they both think they have leverage people are getting fined and meanwhile we're getting closer to the season and this just is going to keep going i don't see what the end is it's a question of who can deal with the discomfort more you know that the fans won't like it but it's going to get uglier and how much are the sixers willing to put up with before they pull the trigger i it it sounds like what Maury's asking for is not close to what anybody's going to offer for James Harden, and I don't think that they should. The, the problem with the Six Swords organization is this, again, isn't their first rodeo with this disaster. They have a history, a long history now, more than a decade, of not getting things right. And if you're not going to get things right, and you can only get to a certain level, we've often talked about the worst thing you can be as an organization is mediocre. Despite tanking all those years, what they've ended as is a little bit more than mediocre. They are a playoff team that can't get past the second round, no matter what. They have the MVP from last season. They still can't get past the second round. They keep drafting people and trading for people and either not keeping them when they need to keep them or keeping them too long. So, the, the and, and by the way, this isn't with one front office staff. This is, we had it with Hinky, and then we had it with Colangelo, which was a circus, Ugh. and now we have it with Maury. 
And every single time it ends up in the same place. So at that point, where does the buck stop? It stops with Josh Harris and the gang. And as you said, now they're spending time competing, spending time in another sport, competing against the team in the city, while at the same time trying to squeeze a new stadium, which is unnecessary, out of the city in an area that nobody wants it, and then suggesting that not only are we on borderline sucking and not getting any better and falling apart and completely blowing up, but we're going to do this and we're going to try to get a stadium and we're going to do it in an area we don't nobody wants it. And then we're going to propose something that's really stupid. And we're just going to put a building on top of the new stadium, which will include some, some affordable housing. Where will Somebody those people gotta, park? That's been the question I've asked all along. I don't know. Where is everybody going to park not everybody will, That's what's gonna not everybody will take mass transit it, it just i get it cities have stadiums we have not been a sports culture that has done downtown sports we go to the stadium complex and tailgate it's a well, culture good, at this point yeah yeah but you're talking a problem that may not happen if they keep going down this road they won't have to worry about big lines in front of the stadium <laughs> People they won't still, have to improve the mass transit. People will still go. It just drives me nuts that well, we listen can't, to you with the field of dreams. We can't have just a regular freaking off season. Like, why can't we talk about that? We've got a new coach and we're going to run a new offense. Instead, we're talking about, you know, a guy going across the world to rip the general manager to then be fine to complain. Like, it's not basketball. It's business. And I don't want to talk like if I want to talk business in sports, I'll say, hey Jeff, can we talk the business of sports? I don't want that when I talk the Sixers. I'm who am I doing this show with? What? I'm very confused. What? This is the guy that talks about ratings and all the stuff that goes to I don't the talk contracts. Do I ever talk contracts? I like the the that side yeah, of you like Okay. I, I, I don't like talk. Con- I don't talk contracts. Like that's just I. I don't like to talk about other people's money. It's just not like. It, okay, so I guess you don't. So I guess you have absolutely no interest in talking about what I'm about to talk about next, which is what? How is Shohei Otani's injury going to affect what deal he's going to? I'm get actually hugely season? fascinated by that. Oh, okay. <laughs> so on air, I just got to show that you're completely wrong about the very things that you say you're interested in. Welcome to my life. I'm a contradiction okay. in itself. So, so now what we know is Shohei Otani is shut down for the season. He has an injury that is usually ends up being Tommy John surgery. He's already had Tommy John surgery once, which was in 2018, I believe. He was about to get the biggest contract in the history of the sport. He is a free agent at the end of the season. First off, does he get a big contract? And second of all, who made the bigger mistake? The Angels in not trading him and getting a boatload of stuff or Shohei Otani in not signing a deal? Uh, I think Shohei will still get a contract uh, because he'll get a contract as a hitter, even if he has to have the Tommy John surgery. You know, that's kind of like a Bryce Harper thing. I think a team will do that. It'll be a smaller contract. I think it's the Angels that made the bigger mistake. They tried to go for it, and they gave up assets rather than taking the unicorn that they had and building their future out of it. They already have the catcher that you love out there that got 
uh, left fielder Ammoniac that they've gotten from the Phillies. I mean, they've got players on that team. Now you've got Trout on the IL. You've got Otani with the UCL. Does he play next season? But I think he will get a contract. I don't. It will not be near the. You know, you saw numbers. Will he break five hundred million, six hundred million? Because he plays both ways. He'll get paid as a pitcher and a hitter. I don't think that he'll get that contract. Two Tommy John surgeries is going to be hard for a general manager and an owner to commit to that. But I think he'll get a big contract still. What do you think? I don't. I don't know how you can sign him knowing that he's going to have a second Tommy John surgery. You're talking now, remember, Bryce Harper, lucky for us, and we can talk about it next, has now got his power stroke back. He's ahead of schedule, and he was out for almost a year, right? How is Shohei Otani going to do this? Is he going to now have this, and is he going to sit out completely next season? Is he going to have this and obviously not pitch next season, and he's going to hit? How do you decide how much money you're going to pay him? You don't know what you're getting and what he's going to be able to do. I actually, I would more likely sign him to a hitter's contract if you could get Shohei to say, hey, by the way, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to be a hitter from now on. So you wouldn't even want him to pitch anymore? you know? You, no, you, I would not. No. Interesting. Think about it. Okay, so assuming, assuming you're going to sign him to a decades-long contract, at least, right? Do you want it? Do you want him to focus on hitting when he already is one of the best hitters in the game? Forget whether he pitches. He's already one of the best, most versatile hitters in the entire sport. Do you want to then risk it by him hurting his arm again? And and if you need an example of it, look what the Texas Rangers did before the season. They signed Jacob Degrom, and look what happened. Well, look who retired yesterday, Steven Strasburg, retired for medical. I mean, it it happens. It's not normal to throw the ball as hard as they do at the arm angles that they do. Like that, there are injuries. And so you, you make an interesting point. I, I don't know whether Shohei is willing to do that and what a team's willing to pay for it. But like you said, he's still one of the best hitters in baseball, regardless of what he does pitching. So, you know, we'll see what they end up doing. I, I, but you mentioned Bryce Harper, and I, I kind of started there at the, the beginning of the show before you told me that I was going off topic and not having you actually join the conversation. Um, my kid wants updates on Bryce Harper at every moment. And so the, the ninth inning home run that tied it up off the foul pole, we must have replayed about 50 times in my house. Um, it is fun to watch him get that power back. You're feeling on the team this week uh, after they take two of three from the Giants and start a series against the Cardinals. They stand at two and a half games up uh, on the Cubs for the first wild card spot with 35 games left to play. I'm still worried about the pitching. Uh, it, Who's your number two? I don't know now. In my mind, it's not Nola. If Walker can get back to Walker and Ranger can get back to Ranger, I think those are your two and three. I think that we all got way over our skis on Lorenzen. Okay, he had a great, obviously, first two games. But now I'm going to ask you the question that I believe I texted you during the no-hitter. 
allowing him to throw that many pitches. That's a lot of pitches. Never done that before. The game before that. So for people who sit there and go, what's the big deal? I'm not. I wish I was not a pitch count guy either. I mean, look, we can go back to the Ron Darling interview where we just gushed over the fact of how many, you know, complete games guys used to throw. But when you have a guy who is not used to or has never thrown that many innings in a game, Lorenzen did it two games in a row. And I said to you, boy, I hope that this doesn't lead to all of a sudden him having a problem the rest of the season. Now, Lorenzen was never a star pitcher to begin with, but the last two outings have been, oof. Yeah, it's been rough. Um, Hey, can I, before we hit the break, because we've got Chris Clary coming up to talk some tennis in U.S. Open with us. uh, Did you watch the Little League Classic that they played last week? Unfortunately, I did not get, and I was really looking forward to it. I did not get to to watch it, but it, it it to me, it's one of the best things that MLB does during the season. It was even cooler because media was out there playing, so you had Schwarber and Harper and and Turner and the guys in the stands cheering them on on the early game while they're playing like they're watching the little league game in the stands like fans and they gave the kids some of the custom bats they had for out there and i i just it was really fun i like i think baseball gets it right with some of those special games that they do i really enjoy that stuff baseball has gotten it more right than not this entire season it is hard to believe that we're saying that considering all the things that Rod Manfred has not done right. But it seems like this season, from beginning to at least to this point, they've gotten it all right. Look, I, I'm going to keep watching. And, I mean, the ballpark's packed for the Phillies, and it's exciting as we head into September. I mean, that's what you want. You want September, October baseball, and right now that's where they're in position for. Let's hit the break. When we come back, we'll talk to Chris Clary, and then we'll talk more after that. Stick with us. Operating engineers are the men and women that move mountains. And the Engineers Labor Employer Cooperative, ELEC, puts them to work. They create opportunities for the men, women, and union signatory contractors of Local 825, repaving our roads, keeping our homes bright and warm, and even building our favorite team stadium. We understand infrastructure. That's why ELEC and Local 825 are ready to get to work. The U.S. Open's getting ready to start. It's great to welcome back our friend Chris, Chris Clary to the show. Chris, how are you doing as we get ready for another fortnight in New York? I'm still getting over that Alcaraz-Djokovic match in Cincinnati. That was something special. Okay, so let's start there before we get to the U.S. Open, because obviously everybody hopes that, that you get to that in the finals, but... It seems like that is sort of the next matchup that that rivalry is sort of symbolizing a transition in tennis. You know, Federer's gone. Um, We'll talk about Nadal in a little bit, but you've got some of these new rivalries. Talk about that rivalry and what it means right now for tennis. I mean, it's manna from heaven, really, for tennis. I mean, you would figure after the the big three era, the golden era, rightly called, that um, ended with Federer retiring and Nadal, you know, on the brink of retirement, coming back maybe next year if he can get his body back together again for one more uh, one more run, but there's no guarantee. So basically, it's Djokovic on his own now, and this young guy from Spain emerges who's just brilliant. Not only is he a great tennis player, he's great to watch, and he's and he's a guy I've spent some time with as a journalist, and he's a uh, you know he's got a like a good heart. He's not perfect by any means, but he's a charming guy. He's got a positive energy about him, um, 
And it's just it's just incredible to see this emerge right now, the way that it's emergent. Ultimately, the matches that we're seeing between Djokovic and, and Alcaraz now, they've played it, you know, three in a row on three different surfaces in the last three months. The first one at the French Open didn't, you know, finish because of the the way it should have because of the cramps from, from Alcaraz, but it was still great tennis for a couple sets. Wimbledon finals, no arguments there. Fantastic stuff. And then the one in Cincinnati was best of three, but felt like it was best of five or best of seven the way they were playing. They just match up so well. Intensity's there. The talent levels are similar. And it's that autumn, you know, spring matchup of the 36-year-old against a 20-year-old. And it's pretty rare that that happens. It's you see guys be able to hang at those different ends of the generations like that. But it's special when it when it occurs. And and we're in it. And I agree. I think we everybody's kind of counting the days till Djokovic Alcaraz five, which would be in the U.S. Open final. Well, that's it, Chris. Chris, you've been writing in, about Alcaraz and, and Djokovic. How important is not just the talent of tennis players, but having charisma? It seems that more than any sport that I can think of, that that the players who have charisma on one side or the other, that are that are either liked because the way that they act, or are the villains, the way that they act, that that seems to drive a lot of a lot of fans in tennis. No, there's no doubt because it's a one-on-one game and, and there's a lot of face time in tennis. A lot of, you can call it dead time, if you will, between the actual action, you know, 25 seconds between the time the ball's put in play. You're seeing the guy's faces all the time. And so I'd be curious what you mean by charisma though. Do you mean the charisma of the, of the playing of the game or do you mean the charisma of what you know about the person off the court? No, I mean, I mean the person themselves, like, I mean, it seems, it seems to be a, almost like a, Maybe not in the United States because we don't we haven't had other than the Williams sisters recently somebody of that magnitude. But it seems worldwide that these are these are like superstars. Like we're just not used to this anymore. When you and I and, and, and Jason grew up, there were these superstars that had these big personalities. Now we we don't have these big personalities that are matched with the skill level. Well, it's interesting because I, I don't think Alcaraz has a big personality yet. But I mean, anybody who follows him and watches him play tennis, that he has charisma because of the way he plays. I mean, you just can't take your eyes off of him. So there's a bit of Federer there in that sense. I mean, Federer was in a different vibe because he had the elegance and the balletic approach to it, and this way of surprising you with his with his shot making. And he just you wanted to watch it. But Alcaraz is expressive emotionally in a way that Federer was not, at least in his prime. And he's an incredible mover, explosive mover, and he's an acrobat. So all those things come together. I, don't, I wouldn't say he's a charismatic guy off the court, but I think he's already a tennis superstar because of the way he plays the game and the positive energy and the energy that he communicates with the crowd. And I went to Indian Wells this year in March. Uh, Djokovic was still not able to get in the country because of the, uh, the vaccination issue with the coronavirus. Uh, Nadal was out. Federer is retired. And basically Alcaraz, before he even you know played these great matches against Djokovic, was carrying the tournament. Big stadium, 15,000 seats, you know, in the desert of California. And it was full whenever he played. He won the U.S. Open last year, set the table. But just because of how he plays. There have been plenty of guys who've won slams that are, you know, very fine players, but just don't have that sort of must-watch kind of vibe to him. And I really think he has it. But we'll see how he grows into the role off the court. Because if he can add in, you know, provocative personality, um, putting himself in a position where he, you know, gives great interviews on camera. He's still kind of struggling with his English a bit. Then it'll go at another notch. But even without that already, I think he's he's must see TV. 
You know, it kind of gets to something that Jeff and I have been talking about. Jeff's been watching it. I haven't been able to watch it. I watched the Full Swing show, which was about the golf tour. Jeff's been watching Breakpoint. Um, these shows, these these sort of docu-series where you get to see the athlete in a way that you don't on the court. You see who they are for good and for bad through the eyes of these shows that are on Netflix and other channels. Can you talk about the rise of shows like Breakpoint and the role they're playing in growing a fan base that may be interested in tennis, but may be interested in the storyline around tennis just as much? Yeah, I mean, my question is, you know, how much is is saturation for this for this approach? I agree, it's great. And to full disclosure, I haven't seen the second batch. I've just seen the first batch of, of, of Breakpoint, the one that focused a lot on Kyrgios and Berrettini and uh, Felix Auger-Aliassime and, and those players. And I, I personally think it's great because honestly, the, the barriers for us on the, on the print journalist side in particular have really gone up over the years. It's gotten harder and harder to get inside these athletes' lives and to connect with them. Their time is limited. They have uh, it broken up in very new ways now with all their own social media, with the tours media. There's just a lot of people pulling at them, whereas before you'd get a, a good chunk for the independent legacy media. And that's harder and harder to get. I mean, New York Times, for whom I worked for so many years, was still getting it, but not many were. And so I think this is a great opportunity for the fans to get a, to get a look. It is curated. I mean, obviously, there's a, you know the tours are giving the access and the players are too, so don't think it's journalism, but it's it's entertainment in a way that I think expands people's understanding of the challenges of the sport, uh, the mentality that's behind it, uh, kind of the agony that a sport like tennis does engender with its, um, you know, basically how good are you? It's, how, it's only as good as your last tournament or your last match. But I, I, I sort of question, it seemed great with Formula One because we really had not seen that approach very often before. It's It seemed great with the, with the Jordan doc. Um, last dance. I just don't know uh, if everybody's going to start doing it. I mean, I know track and field is now going to start doing it internationally. And they're another sport that is really needs a boost because they're, they're losing ratings globally. It used to be, you know, the Olympic sport of all Olympic sports. But if everybody does it at some point, then it's going to, I think, affect how much impact it truly has. But I think it's great. And I think it's it, anything behind the scenes. Just don't think it's journalism because it's not. In looking at Breakpoint, watching it, regardless of the curation of it, which I think we can all agree on, the one thing that I came away from was the mental side of tennis and how difficult tennis is as a sport because it's an individualized sport. As somebody who's covered the sport and written biographies of, of some of the biggest players in the game, how important is the mental side of the sport? Well, I think really it, it is in a game where the margins on the court between the shot making are so slim and and the game where there's so much time to think between points, even between shots at times, I think the mental game is, is really what distinguishes the champion from the great champion, the almost champion from the champion, you know, the journeyman from the, from the solid pro it's, it's just those tennis matches. When you watch a lot of them, very often they come down to a few critical points, be it a break point, be at a point when the momentum in the match is shifting and a point shifts it back. There probably are top players will tell you probably eight or 10 points in a match that make the difference to be able to maximize your abilities in those situations and to produce something close to your best game is what makes you a champion. And those are critical things. And that's so players put an enormous amount of focus on it. It was kind of in the shadows in tennis for a long time. It wasn't talked about as much. Um, there's a lot of talk about choking, but there wasn't so much talk about how you created mental strength. Even though there was a lot of fascination about it, but it's come all the way out now into the open. There's much more 
discussion about it. You're seeing uh, Iga Sviantek, the number one women's player in the world who won the U.S. Open last year, travels with a performance psychologist full time. You're seeing more and more players being very upfront about that. And that's and that's good. I think that's very healthy. And ultimately, tennis is an excruciatingly difficult sport mentally because you have so much downtime to manage. And ultimately, I think the matches are decided in that downtime. Look at Rafa Nadal. I'm writing a book about him now, spending a lot of time focusing on his mental game. But a lot of his rituals, call them ticks, if you will, that is a way to manage that dead time. It's his ability to sort of put himself in an in-the-moment situation with all the things he's doing with his body and picking at his nose and everything else, trying to find a way to center himself before he has to perform. So I think we we ultimately can't even underestimate the importance of the mental side in tennis in particular. Is it something, at least from what you've seen, that you can develop over time? It seems like the, the greats aren't players that develop the mental science. It seems like they were either born with it or grew up with it or just, just seemed to have it from the outside, it, at the outset. It doesn't seem like, like you can get there. You can get somewhere, but you can't really get there. Like you're either born like this or you're not as far as these. Is that something you've noticed or am I getting that wrong? You know, it's there. I think people who are who are good at it from an early age, who are able to put themselves in the moment, block out the static, and uh, and sort of allow themselves to to let it flow. Yeah, they probably keep that skill. But I have seen players get much better at it. Um, if you want to go way back, think about Ivan Lendl, who was considered, a, frankly, a, a big match choker early in his career, um, wasn't able to produce his best. He's a very you know, very sharp mind, smart guy, good chess player. But I think he overthought things a lot. But his, his approach was to be very systematic about it. He was one of the first you know, prominent tennis players to get a mental coach and to work with a, a sports psychologist. And he did a lot of work on centering himself. I wrote about this in the, in the Master, a book on Federer, about how um, you know Lendl basically would take an apple and he'd describe the apple to himself out loud. He'd go, you know, Yvonne Lendl is holding an apple and Yvonne Lendl is putting the apple in the basket. Yvonne Lendl is now going to turn around and go out of the room. I'll stop there instead of taking you into more boredom there. But his idea was... <laughs> He talked himself out. Made me hungry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Whatever he could have. Ivan Lendl is driving to get rid of the food and he's turning the wheel. But it sounds silly, but what he was doing was finding a way to center himself with his voice. And then obviously during the match, the voice shut off, hopefully. And he became an internal dialogue that it became exactly what you were doing in the moment. And Lendl ultimately was able to conquer a lot of his big match nerves and become a repeated champion, one of the best players of the open era. Navratilova as well the same period, had difficulty with her nerves early in her career, was able to overcome that. I would look at, um, you know, in, I guess, recent times, Simona Halep, who's not in the best situation right now with this potential doping suspension and all that, but she was a player who had a real trouble with getting across the hurdle in the big matches, was able to make some uh, make some progress there. So I think, and Federer too, frankly, from having written about him up close and, and very in detail, he was somebody who struggled with his temper, with um, controlling himself, and he became a Zen master in a lot of ways. Still lost a fair number of matches when he had match point. Wasn't always the best closer, but you can't argue with his overall results. So I do see some progress, but I think if you kind of have that from an early age, you kind of keep it. So I'll get to the tournament in a minute. We've kind of hinted around it with different things, you know, talking about your sub stack. You've mentioned you're writing a book on Rafa Nadal. After 32 years, six continents, 6,000 stories later, uh, you're moving on of your own uh full decision in, in good uh, parting with the New York Times, but you're going to become an author and, and be writing. You're writing about Nadal. We won't get into the details of, of the book, but talk to us about this different part of your own journey that's going on right now. Well, you're nice to ask. Um, 
Yeah, it's it was definitely it's, it's been an emotional time. It's a long time to be working someplace. I worked at the International Herald Tribune, which was the New York Times global paper, you know, for a long time, and the New York Times always for three decades, and very blessed to have done so. But I really felt um, when I did the Federer book uh, a couple of years ago and, and really plunged into that that it was a really rich experience, and I got lucky, became a bestseller in a lot of countries, and gave me an opportunity to kind of make a choice. And I asked for a leave of absence from the Times; they had given me one for the Federer book. I wasn't expecting them to give me another one. I wasn't surprised they didn't give me one. So I had to make a choice between staying with the paper or or going off in this new direction. I just felt at this stage in my career, after all these years, it was the adrenaline was really pumping writing the book. And I also, uh, the Substack uh, platform, I think, has really grown. And it's uh, a chance for me to do some kind of daily journalism type writing there as well. So I think that's a nice combination, working on the deep, long-form projects and having a, an immediate outlet. Uh, I'm doing something called Tennis and Beyond, which is um, I'm po- posting, you know, at least once a week or sometimes more often during the slams, covering a lot of tennis on there. So it's a nice mix, but it's certainly bittersweet. And you know, I don't want to get into all of this, but the crazy thing is that I I quit, left on good terms. And then a month later, the New York Times announces that it's shutting down its entire sports department and outsourcing everything. You did. <laughs> so people go, well, Chris, you must have known something. You must have had the inside scoop way to go. I didn't know a thing. I, I knew it was going to be complicated, but I didn't know that. So I'm a little bit uh, heartbroken by the way that all played out and a place that I contributed to for so long. And so many great voices have been writing for the New York Times sports department over the years. It's sad to see that go. And my my colleagues are not losing their jobs. They're being distributed to different places and taken down different posts, but it won't be the same. And I think it's I think it's a loss. I'm sad about that. It is somebody who who somebody who writes about the sport. You know, we talk about sports each week, and it changes from week to week. We just have to kind of go with it. And when you're writing about sports, especially as a columnist, you kind of go with what's week to week. How gratifying or how 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 great is it for you to again be able to tackle a subject in such depth without going into the depth that you're doing with Nick Nadal? We had the chance to talk to you when you were doing the Federer book, and, and it, it just seemed interesting and, and satisfying in a different kind of way to you that you're able to to get to know all of these people that are in their lives and kind of learn about how this young man became this great champion. Yeah, I think you need to have some some questions and themes that you're really interested in digging into. And in the case of Nadal, even though I've covered him for so long, there definitely are those sorts of things. And, I, and his mental game is just so strong. We've been talking about that today. And I think that's ultimately his hallmark is his ability to to produce his best again and again under pressure. And um, and he came out of a no obvious adversity. So that's another interesting question. So how do you create that from a comfortable background? And and how do you how do you become one of the all-time mental giants, really, in any sport? Um, and that whole process is really interesting to get into. And the, the, good, the good news is that you have all this time and ability to, to dig into all these things in detail. And the bad news is that you have all this time and <laughs> ability to dig into these things in detail. Because you know the bloody deadline's coming, and and uh, as a daily journalist, you are you're wired to to produce on adrenaline. So it is definitely a challenge mentally to be able to uh, crank out X number of words each day and do it. But it's a rich experience, and I, I feel like it's it's a challenge at this stage and one that I'm really growing from. And and I really appreciate the chance to have you know to be able to do that. So getting to the tournament that's about to start next week, uh, no Federer, no Serena. Again, sort of a passing of the torch, but the defending champions, the one seeds going into the tournament on the men's side, we, we started sort of where everybody would hope it ends with another matchup 
of Alcaraz and um, and getting what you want with with Djokovic there. Talk about some of the other players to look out for, including for us any Americans that people aren't really knowing going into the tournament, but should keep an eye on. Well, if we're talking about the men, if we're talking about the men, right? Is that you? Yeah, want to we'll get to first? the women next. Uh, yeah, the, the men. I think it's. Um... It's really a pretty good time in men's tennis in the U.S. comparatively to what we've seen maybe in the last 20 years or so. We still haven't had a men's a Grand Slam champion since Andy Roddick, 2003 U.S. Open, which is unprecedented for a sport we once dominated. Uh, so it's not like it used to be. But I think enough time has gone by now with 20 years or so that people are, are almost able to appreciate now what we have. And that is we've got a bunch of players who are top 20 players. We have uh, Francis Tiafo who reached the semifinals at the U.S. Open last year. We have Taylor Fritz. Both of them are now in the top 10. Um, we have Tommy Paul, who uh, who beat Carlos Alcaraz a couple times this year and is a really uh, great all-court player. He's in the top 15. And um, you got some guys that are coming up on the outside, like Sebastian Corda, who's been hurt a bit this year, but he's got a great deal of talent. He's the brother of Jessica Nelly, the great golfers from the Corda family, whose uh, both parents were top-level tennis players. Probably one of the great sports families in the world right now. So there, there are guys that are you know in the mix. They're going to you know, create issues for people, and we have some other young talents as well. There's Ben Shelton who's coming up, who uh, got to the quarterfinals at the Australian Open this year. Just recently turned pro. His father, Brian Shelton, was a pro. Explosive left-handed serve. He's kind of struggled since Australia to win many matches, but he's got a lot of charisma and a lot of a lot of upside to his game. So I, I think there's some um, some nice green shoots in men's tennis right now. But the problem is, I think we've seen that Alcaraz. And Yannick Sinner, who's a, a, an Italian player who played that great match against Alcaraz at the U.S. Open last year, ended up late, late night. Those two have played some classic matches, including in Miami this year as well. Um, I think those guys have kind of defined themselves as the best young players in the world, obviously. So our American guys are just not quite in that category, but they definitely are spoilers and definitely are players who could go deep. Um, Tommy Paul went to the semifinals of the Australian Open this year. You know, Taylor Fritz has, has gone deep at, at slams and won the Indian Wells tournament, beat Rafa Nadal, who was hurt at the time, kind of, but still won the tournament last year. So they've had some big wins now. So I think there's a lot of um, a lot of volume there, a lot of quality volume. But are they real, you know, champions there? I, I think the jury's out and I think it's unlikely. But I wouldn't be surprised to see one of those guys win a major at some point in the next five to six years. Well, you know, in going into last year's U.S. Open, Taylor Fritz was the one that people were keeping an eye on. And Taylor Fritz went out very early. Tiafo ended up being the, the darling for the United States side. What is it about Taylor Fritz this year that we can expect different than last year? No, I don't know. I, Taylor, I don't think objectively has had as good a season as he had last year. I mean, he had the Indian Wells title. He had a deep run at Wimbledon. He hasn't had those sorts of major performances this year, but I, I, he's a quality player um, and, and he's earned that top 10 spot. Um, he's yet to play, I think, consistently his best tennis at the majors. Um, he's a he's a fighter. He's a scrapper, even though he's a six foot five big server. That's the kind of guy he was as a junior, a bit like Andy Roddick was when he was young. Andy Roddick was known for his serve on the pro tour and his power, but actually he started out as a, a little scrapper guy in the juniors who fought for every point and ran behind the baseline. And Taylor Fritz was similar. So there's a little bit of that still in him, the mongrel street fighter, but he hasn't been able to produce his, his very best. And because he doesn't have uh, maybe uh, the all court game to the same level Coming to net, we have the backhand side. Uh, I don't think it's as explosive as some of the other players at the very top of the game. He is vulnerable to guys playing well against him and, and not being able to have, a, you know, basically a, the edge that he needs to to create the difference. But he does have a huge serve and he's improved his forehand and he's very combative. So I can see Taylor certainly where the game is right now, making a run to the quarters. TFO has been really up and down this year. When he's played well, he's played very well. He's been a little bit struggling lately. It's like he's maybe running out a bit out of uh, energy and a little bit of fuel coming into this part of the season, but we'll see. 
loves the crowd and New York will be behind him 100%. And Tommy Paul probably has had the best year, maybe of all those guys. Uh, Tommy Paul, Tiafo, and Fritz all grew up together with Rally Opelka, who's six foot 11, who's had some good results, but it's hurt right now. But Tiafo, Paul, and, and Fritz all in a very meaningful way bounce off each other. You know, you so mentioned that they're all doing well doesn't mean that's not, not a coincidence. You mentioned late, late night. Uh, you had written about uh, some of the matches that go very late into the night, early into the morning, and the impact that it has on the players in their next match and their future matches. We've seen some complaints about that with the women's matches being put on very late. As, as we go into talking about the women's side of the tournament, before we get there, can you talk about just how the tournament is structured that we end up with matches going into the early, early morning for some of these players? You know, objectively, it's insane. I mean, it really is. I mean, you get tennis being played at three in the morning in the middle of a tournament. And who does that benefit? You know, I really don't know. Um, and and I, actually, if you, if you just put it objectively and look at the clock and see them playing, you go, how can this be happening? It doesn't happen that often, but it happens enough that it should be an issue. And I've written about it a lot over the years to uh, to no avail. But eventually there will be some avail, I hope, as we go forward. But um, the reason it happens is ultimately comes down to money. But there's also the sub subcontext, which is um, gender equality. So basically, the Grand Slam tournaments, take the U.S. Open, for example, they have a night session. They need the night session for extra revenue. You need a night session for the television networks to cover it. They want that primetime window. Same thing's happening in Australia now. It started to happen in France. It used to happen as much at France Open in Wimbledon, but certainly Australia and the U.S. And because of the focus, rightly so, on gender equality, there's an, a desire to have both a men's match and a women's match uh, at night. So if you start at 7 p.m. with the expandable accordion-like nature of tennis, you don't know when and really it's going to start, I mean, you know, when it's going to finish. You know, you can't control that. It can be best of five. It can be three sets. It could be five sets. It could be two hours. It could be five and a half hours. So that creates these situations where when you have tight matches, it can go deep into the night and the early morning. And I have covered tennis that's ended at Four in the morning, 4.30 in the morning, three in the morning, 3.30 in the morning. Lately, it seems to be accelerating. I think the differences on tour are, are pretty slim right now. A lot of close matches, a lot of tight matches. There's now a shot clock, which you think would speed up things, but in fact, it's slowing them down because the players are using the clock and going, oh, I have all this time before I'm able to serve. I'm going to use it all. Take my time. So I think there's some real issues the sport needs to iron out. Do they try to alternate men's matches one night, women's matches the next slide into doubles as well to have a little bit more flexibility? I don't know, but it... I just don't think it's fair to the players or to the fans or those people who work at a tournament to have these 2.30, 3 a.m. finishes. It means players aren't going to bed until sunrise. It means they got to play their next match, even if they might have, you know, ostensibly a day off. Part of that day off is spent recovering and, and sleeping in, and then they have to come back and play the next day. At a regular WTA event, there aren't these days off built in. It's a one-week event usually, and we saw that this year in Canada Elena Rybakina, former Wimbledon champion, played till three in the morning, kind of ruined her whole tournament. It just throws everything off. So the reason it exists is the desire to have these night sessions, separate sessions, and um, a sport needs to have a, a long look at it. If there were really a strong union in tennis, like there is in other sports, I think this would have been solved long ago. There hasn't been one. And it, it just, it just, I think it just needs to be addressed and needs to end. You know, speaking of the women's game, what are you expecting out of the U.S. women going into the U.S. Open this year? That's exciting in a way because – a lot of question marks, but also a lot of, a lot of upside. I mean, Coco Goff, people have felt like she's been spinning her wheels a little bit the last couple of years. Obviously a great prodigy, Wimbledon fourth round in her very first Wimbledon at age 15, got to the French Open final last year, still in her teens. You can't complain. I mean, obviously this is a remarkable athlete and a very poised young woman, but really wasn't having you know, great results this year in particular. And people were kind of felt, well, her game's not really maturing and growing. I think there was a recognition after she lost the first round of Wimbledon that she needed to get her game into a different place. 
So she made some tough choices. I think she kind of put her family a little bit to the side in terms of how they impacted her tennis. Her father was, I know, eager to make that move for a while, but has made it. And I think he's she's hired a couple of new coaches. One of them is Brad Gilbert, who was Andre Agassi's coach, also coached Andy Roddick when they won majors and reached number one in the world. And he's a guy who has been doing a lot of ESPN commentary, hasn't coached as much directly in recent years, but he really knows how to do it. And they've had a great impact on her game. You know, she won the Washington, D.C. title and just won the biggest title of her career in Cincinnati and beat Igis Fiontech, we talked about before, number one player in the world. She'd been 0-7 against her, 0-14 in sets, and beat her in a tough three-setter and seems to be showing some wonderful uh, progress on the court. So that said, is she ready to win the U.S. Open? She's still an outsider, but I think she's less of an outsider. Definitely want to watch some Coco, and I definitely want to watch Jesse Pagula, who has yet to play her best tennis at the majors when she needs it most, has been stopped at the quarterfinal uh, mark many times now. I think she's at five or six quarterfinals, hasn't gotten past that. But she's had too much success on the on the regular tour uh, not to have more success in the majors at some point. Is she going to win one? I don't know, but she could certainly go deep. And she too um, has been able to beat Sviantec recently. So I think it's at the very top of the game right now. There is some room for for Pagula and Sviantec to, I mean, for Pagula and for Goff to make a move at, at the U.S. Open. Yeah, before we let you go, Chris, I, I, I did have a behind the scenes question that I don't know if you know the answer to, but but I, one of the things that I've been reading about and seeing is is the issues with the loyalties of coaches in tennis. Is coach, you know, how do you coach? multiple tennis players and then whose box do you sit in and it's it kind of came front and center last year with the fact that rafa nadal's uncle which runs his tennis center was coaching one of the players who then was facing rafa yeah felix was the aliasim yeah yeah how how do they do it and how do they deal with that and and how do the players feel about that Or, or do they just not care and this is just something that that i'm thinking about oh no they care it goes way back i mean i Remember Jim Courier when he won the French Open for the first time in 1991. He was playing Andre Agassi, and they were both uh, disciples and 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 campers at Nick Bolateri's tennis academy. And Bolateri was their coach. And Nick sat with uh, Andre Agassi in the, in the box for the final. And uh, Jim was very hurt by that. Jim won the match, so ultimately got the last laugh. And they they ironed things out over time, but very painful for him. And you see it you see it all the time. The Tony Nadal story that's that's a whole different level. Tony's no longer coaching Rafa directly at this stage of their careers. He's no longer. Carlos Moya is doing that, but still he's a Nadal and forever will be. And, and he didn't even sit in the box of Felix Ogiela seen for that reason, knowing the sensitivities. So yeah, that for sure is real. Um, you're seeing players sometimes, uh, you know, share a coach to save money. So in that situation, obviously there'll be some clarity about what's going to happen. If you ever play, I'll either not show up in the court or I'll, you know, alternate or whatever it's going to be. Obviously the players are not unaware of what the implications are, but yeah, I think it's hard in a mental game like tennis where, Inside edge and inside knowledge are big. It's a hard thing to juggle. Chris Clary, we, we can't wait to watch the tennis on the court for the next couple of weeks. And then I uh, can't wait to have you back in a couple months or whenever the book comes out and everything's ready to talk more about uh, what you're writing about Rafa Nadal. Uh, thanks so much, as always, for giving us the time and uh, look forward to speaking again soon. Thanks, gentlemen. You guys do it right. It's always great to talk to you. Great to be able to go in depth. And, and thank you all. Go back to the sweet pain of writing the book. Wait before you go, Chris. Where can we read you before the book, though? <laughs> well, I'm writing this Substack, so it's uh, Tennis and Beyond, and um, it's been fun. Yeah, I've, I've written a bunch of stuff, and I'm talking about some of the issues we talked about today, and I'm trying to write at least once a week for that, and I'll be writing a bit more often for it during the U.S. Open. But if I'm writing too much for it, you guys call me up and let me know to tell me I should stop because I need to be writing the book. 
Well, There'll never be enough. Check out <laughs> Tennis and Beyond on Substack, and uh, we'll look for the book to come out and uh, look forward to talking to you again. Thanks, guys. I really enjoy when we get to talk to Chris, his his kind of knowledge of the people, but the conversation that, that you brought up about what you learned from the the docu-series that you're watching about the mental side of the game. Um, Great point. I want to talk about that a little bit more. I, I know that he kind of defends it as it's not journalism, and I, I don't really approach it as journalism, but like you had said earlier in the show, I'm fascinated by the media business side of this. And we had talked recently, you finally went over 50% of people or under 50% of people on linear cable, um, people moving more to streaming, people more moving more to these docu-series. And I think that the entertainment side of these, the side that you get to see, whether you like the athletes or not, you get engaged with it. And I think it's going to be a window into some new fans to these sports who you know, people may not pay attention to golf, but if they watch Full Swing and they learn about the golfers, they may pay attention to some of the individual golfers that are doing things. Then they may start to watch golf. And you're seeing that. Chris talked about that with sort of you're getting a lot of other sports doing it. Will there be an oversaturation? I don't think so personally, at least not at this point. But I'm curious your take as somebody who's enjoying Breakpoint of the, the entertainment side of sports that's coming out more. Look, there's there's the side that he's talking about. It it isn't journalism. It's more propaganda to some extent because of the way that it's done and because it's edited. I mean, you can you can go through Michael the Michael Jordan documentary. Who was it produced by? I mean, come on, we all know who it was meant to make look good and who it wasn't. But you do learn things through it just just by the mere videotaping of people and hearing some of the things you say. Specifically with this Breakpoint series. It's it's there's obviously an angle to it, and there there's an attempt to get sympathy for some of the characters in the sport who really aren't sympathetic, especially Kyrgyz. Um, and and there's something to be said. You learn about those people, and you learn the stories, and you learn why at least they think that they are who they are. But it's them telling their side of the story in a way that they want to tell it which makes the job of somebody like Chris and so many other journalists hard because it shuts them out. Instead of them telling a more objective story, you're getting the actual subjects telling a subjective story. I just find, I do find some of the stuff in it. I found it entertaining. I didn't, I didn't feel like I learned that much other than tennis is hard. I I wonder, and I know, Chris looks at who has the final cut. I wonder whether it actually gives more windows and avenues for journalists to ask questions based on things that they see in the curated content series. So I wonder if it creates a different line of questioning. One that I am looking forward to. Okay, first one that um, I can't watch, the Florida Gators one that's out there, is like a total whitewash on Urban Meyer and everything that happened there. I, I can't do that one. But one that I am looking forward to that's did coming. Did you really need to bring up Urban Meyer here? I did. Just Like of all the things, do we really need to talk about Urban Meyer ever yeah. again? Well, we don't need to talk about him, but I needed to get your reaction to him. Uh, well, um, you got my reaction. The, the one that I am looking forward to very much so, I don't know if you've seen any of the previews, is Jason Kelsey has a documentary coming on Amazon Prime. Uh, basically, he thought he was going to retire last year. And so they just had cameras following him 
throughout the year, and it looks fascinating. I mean, he's a a very likable guy to begin with, everything that he does around the city. So, you know, people see him out there. But I'm looking forward to this one. Have you seen anything about that? I have not. Uh, I, th- I think it's going to be... I got nothing to add about that one. I think it's going to be fun. And I, it's, I'm not saying that they're all perfect. And I'm not saying that it will be like this forever. But I'm very curious how many people will watch something and then watch a sport after that didn't care about a sport before because of it. Because as people's patterns shift, and, and like Chris says, there's going to be so many of these on so many different platforms. We, we've talked to Arthur before about all the different avenues that people can consume content. You're going to have to find a creative way to suck people in. That's why you're seeing all the different media partnerships that these sports are going to. So I'm I mean, just... look, the, the, the thing, you know, I've talked to so many people that have watched that Formula One racing thing. It was fascinating because people didn't know anything about Formula One. The tennis thing is fascinating because not a lot of people know a lot about tennis other than the top three players in each sport. I mean, on each side. So, and I think it's the same thing with golf. Doing it with sports where people don't follow them regularly is more interesting because people learn about the individuals. I think it's hard, like hard knocks to me is a waste of time. I, I, I don't get it at this point. You're not learning anything. It's for the most part, it's not even entertaining. It's just watching practice. You don't like Which, to watch right, practice. I'm talking to the guy who went to one of the preseason <laughs> games and went to a practice. Yeah. So I'm, I'm the bad other people. That's going to be the final word this week, Jeff. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Make sure to join us next Friday night to help you start your weekend in style. Have a great one. I will talk to you next week. Bye-bye.